Hi, I'm Gary, and this is episode 170 of EV Musings, a podcast about renewables, electric vehicles, and things that are interesting to electric vehicle owners. On the show today, we'll be looking at the lessons the UK can learn from Norway's electric vehicle rollout. This season of the podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the free-to-download app that helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. Before we start, I want to just let you know that in an upcoming episode, I'm going to be talking about motorway service areas and why I think that we won't ever have enough charges there in the future. Our main topic of discussion today is Norway. Everyone looks at Norway as being a prime example of how to do EVs correctly. They have one of the largest take-up of electric cars anywhere in the world. They're the second largest market for Teslas outside the United States. And they're a role model for other countries wanting to roll out widespread adoption of electric vehicles. In today's episode, I want to look at how they did that, what they did right and wrong, and what lessons other countries such as the UK could learn from them as we move to banning new fossil fuel sales in 2030. Obviously, I'm not an expert on Norway. The closest I've come to it is a skiing holiday there 20 years ago and watching a lot of Bjorn Nyland's videos on YouTube. So I wanted to bring in someone who knows what they're talking about. I'm delighted to be joined today by Tor Harichoy, I think, I hope I've got that right, who is the CEO of Spiri and was formerly the CEO of E.ON and has extensive experience of working in Scandinavia. Welcome, Tor. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. It's, uh, now, today I want to talk about the EV situation in Norway, what they did right, what they did wrong, and what we can learn here in the UK, because they're obviously a few years ahead of us in terms of their their life cycle. So do you have sort of off the top of your head some ballpark figures about number of cars or percentage of EVs, number of chargers, number of CPOs, some general statistics about the electric vehicle market in Norway? Please. Yeah. First of all, the Norwegian market is interesting and should be interesting for all of us as they are and has been the front runner within the EV rollout globally. So I think it is sort of a right sort of way to look if any country at the moment decides to roll out EV and EV infrastructure in a, at a faster pace, because as you sort of rightfully mentioned in the beginning, there are many learnings, but there are also some sort of not to do's coming out of sort of uh, working within the Scandinavian market within the last uh, 10, 10 years. So it's a very natural sort of way to look for good answers for the future. Uh, so that's why I think it's a very interesting question. And the Norwegian market is very progressed. They have been doing a lot of things right. And all of these things they have been doing uh, has sort of coming into that sort of the last fossil fuel car will be sold on the Norwegian market in not that many months or years to come. Already today, more than 90 or 95 percent of all newly registered cars are actually with the EV cars. So just getting sort of a, a comparison to that, sort of the 
average market in Europe is uh, less than uh, a twenty percent rollout, and you have areas with within the European Union and also UK where sort of you have uh, less than ten percent of uh, EV registered as a comparison to the all the new cars registered on, on the market. So at the moment, sort of the Norwegian market is almost only EV cars being registered on the market and. The question could be, how did it come to this, and how did it come to this this fast? Uh, sort of the the story about the ketchup coming out of the bottle all of a sudden truly came uh, for the Norwegian market, and I think sort of the learnings coming out of that one should look at right away to make sure that this the sort of development, this very fast and agile transition, could uh, take place in every other market where one desires. So there's a lot of things which sort of uh, were sort of uh, being done right, and uh, the very first thing to look for is uh, the vision for the Norwegian market, uh, and that is uh, sort of where the politicians sort of said, "Well, we want to do this, and we want to do this quick." Uh, so they took a lot of things which they decided to do from a national political regulatory level, and they sort of enforced that, uh, making sure that all the Norwegians who were to sort of decide on transporting themselves in a new manner, had a clear vision from the politic, politician's side on uh, what their vision was for the future. And that sort of clarity was the main driver because that has been sort of uh, prominent throughout the last 10 to, to 15 years. And when it comes to statistics, other than sort of let almost 100% of cars now are EVs being registered on the Norwegian market, then there are sort of uh, a large scale rollout of uh, infrastructure. And uh, today sort of the number of charges per vehicle, when you compare to other countries around Europe, when then the Norwegian sort of uh, rollout almost is 100% more, not mature, but there's a lot, coverage of 100% more than in the second most dense country, which is uh, Netherlands. So it shows that not only the cars has sort of been rolled out, but the infrastructure to supporting these cars have been rolled out at a similar, very fast pace. Uh, there's a couple of things you've touched on there that I want to come back to uh, in a little a little while. But I know when you and I have discussed this previously, you've referred to, I think you, could, you referred to it as the Klondike situation, where it's been a yeah. bit of a Wild West mm -hmm. with without any underlying strategy or, or oversight. Do you want to talk a little bit more about what you, what you mean by that and, and what impact that's had on, for example, the infrastructure in Norway? Yeah, I would gladly uh, touch upon that because that's also part of the Norwegian sort of story that as it is for, I uh, sometimes compare it to sort of when sort of Europeans came to America and sort of uh, took on towards the West and put up sort of uh, cities scattered around sort of uh, the Midwest. These cities were sort of sometimes referred to as uh, Klondike or otherwise sort of new cities without any structure. And the same were sort of the the parallel for the infrastructure being built in Norway, that as it was a market which was not sort of you had not sort of taken on before, and it was there was no business model. Sort of the infrastructure being built in Norway in the beginning was, well, we'll set up a few charges here and a few charges there, but there were no intelligence really behind sort of where to put it. There were no payment systems towards these charges. So it was all new territory. So 
the business model were not sort of being built yet. So it was mainly charging for free. And it was mainly sort of people putting up charges just for the course of the sustainable future. This, of course, was not sustainable in the, in the long run. So the Norwegian driver in the beginning were used to not sort of paying a lot for charging and maybe nothing at all. They were also used to that having a car, there was not that much of charging infrastructure because sort of the business case in it was not that good for people investing in it. So much of the charging also were where you just put in the plug in sort of your normal plug in the house uh, with 220 volts coming out of it. Of course, that was not a very fast charging. That was a very slow charging. So you would see a lot of cables sort of from the house across the boardwork to the to the car. Of course, today, this is uh, this is mainly also prohibited. But at that point of time, it was sort of a standard way to charge. So it was you could see like a very first phase infrastructure and first phase way of charging. Uh, a limited number of the infrastructure in mainly in the cities. Much of this was for free because nobody know about knew about a business model or payment method. A lot of infrastructure was uh, that you just charge at your house with a, a little plug. Of course, today with the battery sizes, it would never sort of have any way of uh, working for a normal uh, behavior of driving your car. Uh, this is a, a business model which you would not sort of prefer to have in in this phase two rollout of EV structure in new markets. But it was simply the way that it was better done in Norway because they took the action. Yeah, they needed some kind of rollout. And this was sort of the way people addressed EV infrastructure and EV charging at that point of time. When you build the new markets, like in Britain or in the rest of Scandinavia or in Central Europe. Of course, the learnings from how to not approach the first EVs on the market, how to approach the first charging infrastructure, you should avoid these kind of learnings because it was a bit of difficulty for the Norwegians to turn away from this. People were used to not paying that much for charging. They were used to, well, it's all right to, to have a cable across the boardway to uh, boardwalk from the house to the car. Uh, with all sort of the incidents that could take, because that's the way you're used to it. So transforming the Norwegian market towards a normal business market, a normal commodity, actually was a bit of a difficulty. And this is sort of the Klondike uh, model, which I sometimes refer to when sort of the learnings from the early days in Norway has to be told. I know from discussions I've had with other people that one of the big drivers for EV adoption in uh, Norway was the fact that they've got this very, very robust sovereign wealth fund. Do you want to sort of talk to us a little bit about what they've used that for and how they've created incentives for uh, EV drivers in Norway, please? Yeah, I think as we touched upon very briefly early, sort of the the government of sort of in Norway sort of early on chose to sort of have a vision for they wanted to transform their mobility sector and not only cars, also vans and buses and trucks at the later stage, but transforming that into fueled by electricity. Uh, they sort of uh, had the clear clarity of putting that vision out, but they also had the advantage of supporting that with with money. And the money so far came out of sort of the earnings they made from the fossil fuel sector, which is 
quite funny, but the, it gave them that advantage sort of to to put money after transforming this market. And the money sort of went into making sure, first and foremost, that the EV car for the consumer or the EV driver was an affordable way of uh, driving around. And that comes down to sort of the the cost of acquiring a car. So they said, okay, if this has to happen fast and swift, we must sort of turn the behavior from the EV driver. And how do you do that? We first of all make sort of the the EV car affordable. And second of most, of course, we make charging available. On the affordable, the price of an EV, they couldn't sort of change the production cost of a car because at that point in time, it was much more expensive than a fossil fuel car, an ICE car. But they said, okay, we will uh, we'll take away sort of the tax and we'll take away the VAT on EVs sort of making sure that we sort of make the incentive for people to, um, from a price perspective, to acquire an EV. And of course, that did take a lot of money out of the Norwegian <laughs> revenue as a government, but it also sort of made the change uh, work much faster and much quicker than sort of uh, it would normally have done. And that is part of the problem we see in other countries today, that even though the technology is there, uh, and it's been there for a while. From an EV driver point of view, it's still almost on the break now, but at a very long time, it's been that ICE cars, old-fashioned cars, have been cheaper than EV cars, and then the changes don't happen because people are very price-orientated. But in Norway, they said, okay, we want to put out a lot of money from sort of the, the money the state get in and return that to people who actually chooses to drive an EV, and that made the change go much quicker and much faster. They also set sort of a regulatory ban on sort of ICE cars as one of the first countries to make sure that people knew from a certain point of time you were not allowed to sort of acquire a new car and drive it around, which also made the change faster. But most and mainly it came out of the money which people set up were given by not paying taxes and VAT on EV cars. And that made the change go much faster. The other side to the whole EV uh, picture, you've obviously got the vehicles themselves and they've got to be made um, cheap and available. And you've just talked very eloquently about how that's happened. But of course, the other side is the underlying infrastructure. Now, in the UK, we're we're still sort of early adopters. Uh, People are putting new charges in as quick as possible. One of the issues we have in the UK, obviously, is reliability you might turn up at a charger and it doesn't work or you can't get the payment to work or it's running really, really slowly. Now, my exposure to the Norwegian setup is mainly through videos from people like Bjorn Nyland. And for the most part, the infrastructure in Norway looks good, but he does get to certain places where there'll be a a charger broken down or there won't be enough installed and there'll be a queue. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was the the strategy for rolling out the infrastructure? Because you've we've gone from, as you said earlier, people running cables out across the pavement and free uh, electricity, through to having some you know some quite robust infrastructure in the country. You've got the Kempower chargers, you've got chargers at all the Circle K um, garages and things like that. What? How did you get from the starting point? To the situation where we are now and how reliable is that infrastructure? 
Well, it was a transition. And I actually, as I touched upon earlier, I think the transition actually took a little longer than it would will, we will see in other markets coming from a sort of early adopter market slash Klondike market going to a commercialized market. And Norway has the advantage of being front runner. So they are naturally now also in the rollout of EV structure, much more progressed than any other country in, in, in Europe and also globally. But it came maybe a little slower than you could expect because of their heritage of being not sort of uh, not being in a uh, mature market. But really when the big change came, it was, of course, that sort of the, the, the pure volume of cars being on the street made sort of the demand for EV charging enormous. And they, in Norway, there's a big old tradition, uh, which I heard from my early sort of adoption of being on the Norwegian market, that people at, at Eastern time all goes to the little cottage in the mountain. And when people acquired sort of the, um, the EV, their main problem from actually adopting an EV was that they could not go on the Easter trip to the to the mountains because they could not drive there in an EV. So that created <laughs> in itself a sort of a big, big demand for putting up sort of charging, not only the housing and the hubs, uh, the cottages, but also doing these new hubs. So just the mere sort of uh, volume of cars all of a sudden sort of expanded rapidly and that sort of made sort of the transformation that you only needed this Klondike-like charging infrastructure to now also have a commercial setup for charging, a very, uh, sort of very predominant that you needed it right away. But of course you needed investors to do it. And what we saw was that the charging also went from the early phase AC charging, which is sort of the more slower uh, way of charging, which you have on destination, mainly at your sort of your own garage or the workplace. All of a sudden, when volume increases, you get a big, big demand for superchargers or quick charges in charging hubs. So you had these uh, new players going into the market, much more sort of aggressive, and that could be Circle K or that could be Tesla with that supercharging hub. So all of a sudden, this new market you have not, you didn't see it anywhere else, except for that Tesla sort of had the idea as well, building superchargers and hubs for charging. They had just set up these supercharging hubs all across Norway. So they were the first movers also in going from destination charging where you at some point in time didn't have a business model you didn't need it because at home you didn't need any payment methods and at your workplace mainly sometimes your your, your workplace sort of provided the power all of a sudden you went to actually needed charging on the go and you had the availability of sort of your first first model superchargers and you needed a payment method and all of this came together on the Norwegian market where sort of there all of a sudden was the first indication that you actually could make money out of this. So business model were being made where sort of you have a commercial, commercialized product which was charging. You saw the advantage of putting up many charges alongside each other because people didn't want to wait on going on their East trip because there were stories about if you go to your cottage mid in, in the mountains, you needed to wait like 10 or 12 hours to not to charge, but just to wait for a charge to be available. So 
all of this all came together. So the business models and supercharging hubs and sort of volume of infrastructure were building quite rapidly. So of today, sort of you have the most sort of dense infrastructure, also supporting sort of the most progress sort of uh, rollout of EVs. So today you will see that many of the charges on the Norwegian market support all of this new business model of providing charging as a service, uh, as you will see for an old commodity like uh, gasoline or diesel. So today this is a sort of a well-developed sort of a commercialized market. And Norway sort of led the way, but they had to go sort of on detours before that and from a Klondike-like situation. How did they decide where was the optimum place to install a particular charger? Now, for example, you probably know here in the UK, uh, one of the first major rollouts of chargers was at the motorway service areas with the company that uh, used to be called Ecotricity. Yeah. And other than that, the majority of the chargers that were installed were single chargers. You might find one in a car park in a town. You might find one in um, in a hotel car park or something like that. And we've now expanded where we've got hubs, huge uh, hubs. They've just opened um, the last set of chargers at the biggest rapid charging hub in the UK, which has now got 36 high-powered rapid chargers mm -hmm. in the same location. Yeah. So when we look at Norway, I, I tend to think that people like Circle K at Shell, some of the old um, petrol stations have either transferred from petrol or fossil fuels to electric chargers, or they've allocated specific land for electric chargers on their, their site. Was that a a specific strategy or did it just evolve that way? And do you still have the odd charger here and there sort of out in the middle of nowhere? I, I see, um, you will see both. I think as for the first phase of this rollout, you would see these odd chargers standing around. And I think still see that in other parts of Europe, you will still, when you go around, you'll still see one or two chargers standing there all by themselves as a symbol of sort of the first phase of e-mobility rollout. But it's also a learning from if you sort of can skip that phase and go directly into actually a more optimum way of charging is where you have hubs, which is sort of the learnings you should take out of not necessarily take the first phase because a single charger or two single chargers next to each other is not the comfort that people are looking for because they, if they go somewhere, they will make sure that the charger is there and available when they come. And of course, the more charges there are gathered in a supercharger hub, the more certainty they have that a charger is available. But the way sort of that transformed from being sort of small islands of one or two charges into supercharging hubs is the advantages that the sort of the landowners or the, the Circle K, which sometimes own the land or rent the land, they have and actually have a sort of the the behavioral sort of uh, normalism and people going there already, they could sort of use that land for sort of simply slowly changing their energy provided from that station from fossil fuels to sort of electricity. Of course, they took the chance from that and the sort of the advantage from that and used that position to build 
their market and transform their customer base into the new market. Then you have new players in the market like Tesla, who didn't sort of have sort of a, an existing land or uh, uh, fossil uh, gas fuel station. So they needed to acquire new land. Much of the time, they actually looked for sort of a a piece of land nearby where people are used to going, and that would be the old gas stations. So you will see many of these charging stations nearby sort of um, highways or nearby infrastructure, sort of uh, bottlenecks, because that's where people are and that's where people normally look for uh, for energy, old-time fossil fuel and now electricity. But of course, the existing players, even though they were sort of slowlier going to market than sort of Tesla and sort of the pure electric providers. They were had the advantages of building infrastructure on the land. And of course, they took that sort of advantages and provided them some kind of uh, precision for the future as well. So today, when you sort of uh, go around Norway, you will of course see that many of these players have sort of uh, secured their position in the market by also providing e-mobility and also providing e-mobility charging on a large scale with sort of supercharging hubs because that is sort of uh, what the, the customer base in Norway see. And even though, just to reflect on what's happening in Europe and in UK, you'll still see that sort of the old uh, gas stations like uh, oil and gas companies, they are still slowly sort of in their sort of uh, going to market in recognizing that they need sort of to change their position and really sort of provide e-mobility charging on a huge scale when they sort of uh, are to secure their future sort of customer base. If you just go sort of uh, through Germany or France or even UK, uh, it's not that many superchargers you see. And I would say that from a strategic point of view, there's a huge opportunity for them to, uh, to sort of, to to have sort of the customer behavior transformed into, they will keep the customer instead of losing it to new CPOs, which will build infrastructure anyhow. And they should do that now rather than later, because if people are getting used to go somewhere else to fuel their car with the electricity, then they will lose this customer base. So learnings from Norway is you need to transform before customer sort of transform their behavior because all of a sudden sort of they have they have addressed sort of a new behavioral uh, method and might, might charge at the supermarket. They might charge at the parking lot where they park. They might charge at some other sort of the station instead of the oil and gas sort of uh, station, which they used to do. So. Normally, uh, sort of, you should use, and that was the Norwegian case shows that they were quite successful. The oil and gas station, like Circle K, in transforming their business model from fossil fuel to energy uh, as a whole, and also supplying uh, electricity. I've got a couple more questions on infrastructure, and then I want to talk about payment processing and roaming and things like that. Let's just loop back onto Tesla. How influential have they been? I mean, I believe that the largest supercharger site in Europe, maybe even the world at one point, is at Nebenes, which if you think about it without actually knowing the background to Norway, you'd, you'd find that quite a surprising thing. So why were Tesla leaders when it came to the rollout of infrastructure in Norway, or did they identify a niche and kind of follow other people who were who were working in that market? Um, 
I think what Tesla did, they were sort of, they were a front runner with the EVs and a sort of a proud one uh, in the early days. And I remember just coming out sort of at that point of time, also being in sort of in the Danish and Swedish market and also in the German market. It was actually quite hard to, to get an EV at that point of time also, because many of the EVs were sort of uh, shipped to Norway. And that was also the case for sort of the, for Tesla. So in some point of, along the road, sort of also Tesla also provided a lot of their uh, production to the Norwegian market because the offtake in the Norwegian market was so, so huge. And it was sort of a proof case also for, for all the EV put, uh, car production uh, facilities sort of to prove that they can supply this market. And as that come, as for Tesla, sort of also, of course, the Norwegian market that putting up infrastructure was important to support sort of the, the, the cars that they shipped to Norway. And at that point in time, they also had a strategy on sort of that when you bought in a Tesla, you had sort of uh, in the early days, you at the same time had free energy for that car within the lifetime, which was part of the business model in the early days. So, of course, they needed to provide infrastructure. So at that point of time, they had this sort of, they were one of the sort of few front runners in sort of making modern EV uh, charging available also in Norway, because they were the, f I would say they were the first clearly to, to boot up superchargers uh, on the Norwegian market. And first at a later stage, sort of the later adopters, like oil and gas fuel stations and stuff like that came and sort of acknowledged that that was sort of the, the way of charging in the future and saw that there actually was a business case, not only in parallel with selling a car, but just by fueling and earning money by selling electricity. So Tesla was clearly a front runner on the Norwegian market as well, uh, merely because it was a supplement to, to selling the car and servicing the car. Uh, and so sort of some many of the learnings people took from how to build infrastructure came out of sort of the learnings that Tesla did. Uh, almost 10 years ago. Last question on uh, infrastructure. The UK government has come out and said we need 300,000 chargers in the UK to support the rollout. Mm -hmm. uh, now, there's a lot of discussion and disagreement about how accurate that figure is because it doesn't give any indication of where these chargers need to be, whether they need to be AC chargers, DC chargers, a mixture or, or whatever. Now, obviously, Norway has gone through this particular process of saying we're now up at, you know, virtually 100% of new cars have a plug. We know how many charges we've got. We know how many charges we need. How did that evolve? Where did, did somebody come up and say Norway needs X hundred thousand charges or was it just an organic sort of development and you've just happened to get to the number that's appropriate by chance, or was there some sort of uh, thinking and strategy behind that? I think it was both. Uh, I think normally politicians both have sort of the ambition and sort of the communicative way of saying, we want X amount of cars. That's our vision for our country. And we want X amount of EV charging. That's our vision for the future. But when it comes to reality, they can put out these numbers and they can say them loud. And it's mostly in the sort of the clarity of the direction this will give any meaning because when it comes to how many cars is being adopted to the market how many ev structure is being deployed it's 
for sort of all the players in the market to sort of make sure that they want actually want to do it. They actually want to deploy cars, the EV structure. They actually want to sell cars in this country, and they the customer wants to buy those, and that accounts for EV structure as well. So I would say that you, for every market, you do see that the sort of politicians will say a number, but when it comes to the adaptation of that number into reality. It comes down to the demand for charging, and I would say, both in Norway clearly already, but also for the rest of Europe, we are at that stage where infrastructure is being deployed, but it is being deployed on a commercial level. So people putting money into infrastructure expect a return on investment, and that will only come in the sort of in the in a parallel rollout to when volume is there, and that is cars. So even though if the government had said we wanted 20,000 chargers in Norway, which they sort of clearly sort of reached, or if they have said we want 10,000, it would be the demand for charging would sort of just in phase two, three, four, which we are already in in Norway, decides on how much charging is there. Because if there's a business case for it, I'm quite certain that the Circle K will keep on putting money in for, into infrastructure and the same accounts for every parking facilitator or retail business who see that there's a case for charging and then you will have a normal sort of commercial uh, market growth of, of infrastructure so of course it matters that people, uh, politicians point the direction but most and foremost it is that there is a clear sort of a business case for people who are to invest money because it's not the state doing that in sort of in any of the European market, they might have some kind of uh, a pot of money to support infrastructure, but it's a minor, minor thing compared to the money going into infrastructure in Europe. So it was not that, it's mainly demand and, and supply, which will sort of drive the number of charges out there. And uh, it will, it should also be in my point of view, because that's the only way of supplying a sustainable number of charges for the future. Let's move on to, <clears throat> excuse me, payment processing. Now, one of the the big issues in the UK is that when every new charge point operator came out and started putting charges in, they decided that for the most part, they wanted their own app or their own RFID. So if you were doing a lot of traveling and a lot of public charging in the UK, you ended up with a a, a box full of Kiefer, um, Yeah. Uh, RFID fobs or apps on your phone or things like that. Yeah. How has that evolved in Norway? What is is that something that people are okay with in Norway, or do they all want contactless or or what? How how does that work? I think that that's one of the uh, areas where Norway might not be the sort of the most progressed <laughs> country, uh, <laughs> and that's also a learning because it comes down to sort of either you have a physical. RFID card, or you have the app, or you have something completely different. You might have your credit card. All of these payment methods are, when it comes down to what's the easiest and what's the better and what's sort of the simplest, uh, I think there's different uh, views on that. My personal point of view is that I hate in the when I did for like five years ago, went around with them um, just five to ten different cards and had to use the right one, the right place, and had to look for the right thing. So I fully support the idea of roaming and like we have on a phone that when you go outside your, your country or what you do, that you can bring your phone, you can roam, and there's a fixed price model for it. all of this out of a consumer's point of view. But when you see the 
Norwegian market is actually that not that much progressed on when it comes to roaming, and uh, as for many other countries, I think it comes out and they they did better in the last year or so because they have have gone better on the roaming part, which is the sort of the key issue to not being able to have ten thousand cards or you can put it all in. 10 different apps on one app, it all comes down to whether you accept roaming. But roaming, if it's not regulated by on a national level or a European level, it's up to the different infrastructure owners whether they allow it. And for a long point of view, time, sort of the different infrastructure owners in Norway really didn't want to go that way. They believed in having a closed system for only their own user group and having their own RFID card or payment app, which sort of made it troublesome for the uh, for the EV driver. From my personal point of view, uh, you should sort of allow or maybe even regulate that it's as flexible and open as possible to make sure that the EV driver is not in any way troubled or uh, sort of hindered in sort of uh, using the different uh, infrastructure parts on sort of either the same card or the same app. Of course, the infrastructure owner is the one sort of uh, deciding on the right price and having the money. But from an EBIT point of view, it should be as flexible as possible. And from that point of view, the infrastructure owner should allow for roaming. And if it's a player with a sort of a, a huge market share or dominance on the market, host, they should be forced to do it. So they sort of don't log in the market. So that is from the regulatory side. But even from a commercial side, I would say that the more open they are, the more volume they can attract. And that is also why sort of the big first movers in the market, like Tesla, at the moment are sort of <laughs> on the verge of opening their network to others and allowing sort of people to charge it even though they're not sort of a Tesla owner, because that's the way the market is going. And even the, the, the Norwegian market is going that direction. But for a long, long time on the Norwegian market, you, used to, you need to have the right RFID card or the right app to charge at the right station. So it would not be the way for me to look if a market like the UK or the German or the Spanish market should say how to, to, to progress in payment, because it should be like in any other market. You should either be using your credit card directly or your credit card should be in your preferred app and then you could use that app anywhere. And then, of course, roaming should between the different operators should take care of all the necessary payment methods between this. So this is the way I would see that the market is surely going and Norway was not sort of the most prominent sort of uh, first mover on this. Then it comes to pricing methods like hourly pricing because electricity prices are fluctuating by the hour. So you could see uh, cheaper prices during nighttime or morning or sort of around lunch. And at peak hours, it's more expensive. So all of these facilitate uh, things about functionality, about pricing and payment is also already being included in the sort of majority of the modern payment methods. And you should be able to see the price live not when you are at the station, but when you approach it because you drive to it. So you should be able to to filter where is the cheapest price right now. You can do that on an app. You can, can't do that on a RFID card. So also because of that and because of that, you may be able to reserve the uh, charging station in the app. I think that the 
thing about roaming is clearly going on a preferred way towards roaming, but also between the RFID card and the app. As may, most people now have the smart uh, phone, they, I prefer the app because there's much more functionality built in sort of a smartphone than there could be in a RFID card. So also the sort of the whole transition is going towards that. It's an app with roaming, but Norway was clearly not the better ones and the first one in doing this. And you see many sort of companies like Spiri who sort of now support the roaming thing and the sort of the uh, the app sort of uh, interface towards the end consumer. And that they, these are mainly driven from sort of outside the Norwegian market because they were not used to doing it. So many of these new uh, companies providing these modern solutions are not driven from the Norwegian market because they were sort of by heritage, not the ones who sort of drove this the better way in the beginning. So my personal view on, on roaming is I, I don't care that every charge point operator has their own app. I don't care no. that they have their own RFID card. But like you, I care that I have to only use that app or only use that RFID card on that network. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to go to any charge point operator, yeah. pick up their app, use their app on any network. I want to be able to roam across all of them. Yeah. And there's benefits for doing that. And that's pretty much what you've said there. So it's pre precisely how I perceive the future that there's not one app to rule them all. There might be 100, but your preferred app, whatever that might be, should allow you to go to whatever charging station, actually globally, and be able to sort of access that charge point. And then, of course, the app owner or the charging operator should facilitate sort of the internal payment process. But between you and the app, that's your choice. Uh, and, but it should allow you to go as far as possible, charging as many sites as possible, because that's flexibility for the uh, for the EV driver. I totally agree. Now, you talked a few minutes ago about charging tariffs, the pricing that people pay for uh, charging in Norway. Now, as far as I'm concerned, there's basically two tariff methods for charging. You can either charge somebody for the time that they're connected to a charger, or you can charge somebody for the amount of energy that they uh, take. What is the method is, that is most used in Norway and why? And what sort of changes to tariffs are you envisaging? I had Tommy Uristamaki from Kempower yeah. on the uh, on the podcast last season, mm -hmm. and he was talking about um, spot pricing, for example. That's right. something that's built into the software already. Yeah. Is that something that you could see becoming a little bit more widespread? Uh, I, I agree uh, with uh, sort of that sort of forecast for the future. I see that we come out of a, a period where sort of charging by the amount of energy was the predominant sort of uh, way of charging, like by the kilowatt hour, but also that sort of what actually is more and more predominant is that you have a mixture of both uh, minute pricing or idle price pricing, which is the time sort of where you are connected to the charger. Uh, because the, of course you can both have the minutes you, you actually charge and then at some point of time you stop charging, you're still connected to the charger uh, in some, point, some minutes or hours. And both of these sort of uh, things is, will be sort of important for the future. And why is that? It's because, of course, the, the energy uh, going through the charger is driving costs from the one supplying. 
the energy to the car, but also the time you actually occupy the charger is like if you sort of had in the old days a car parked in front of the uh, gas station, it will take off a lot of uh, income from the from the gas station owner. So here, the 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 time you actually connect it to the charger and the time you sort of take up capacity from the charger will be a way of doing some kind of uh, notching of the EV driver to only stay there for as long as it takes to charge. So at many point of time, you have both today a kilowatt hour pricing, but also in a minute pricing for idle time so that you get notched to only sort of use the space for charging when you need it. So you will see that for the future, I'm quite sure. And that is also sort of the way that many of the Paris models now are adopted, not only in, in Norway, but also across Europe. Then also on the spot pricing, this is super important in making sure that you get the cheaper price. At the moment, the ones who have adopted sort of hourly pricing or spot pricing, they have a quite huge advantage in attracting people to their charge station uh, and getting more business because as the price fluctuates during the day, and it does in many of the markets, uh, then sort of people will naturally go for the price of the charge stations at the time where the prices are low. The people who cannot support hourly pricing or only have a fixed daily price, they will lose all of the customers for the charge points where you have cheaper prices during half of the day. Uh, for the rest of the day, they might not win the same amount, even though the price is lower for the rest of the day, because all of the capacity has been transformed into the cheaper prices. That would be the behavior of many EV drivers. So just by that nature, the suppliers already now supplying spot prices will win a lot of the market and it will drive sort of the rest of the market toward that price model. The other drivers will be that are for phones. Sort of, uh, there has not been a price model which sort of did that they were hourly pricing. So instead, you had this all inclusive where you for the one month could have a fixed price. That is also a business model for some areas. But as of you have all hourly prices as a possibility, I think that the sort of the pure nature of the attractiveness of lower pricing for charging of your EV will drive the market towards spot pricing uh, because the energy market is much more fluctuating than uh, petrol market was. You didn't have, didn't have hourly pricing there. And even for the telco market, you didn't have hourly prices for capacity being uh, implemented. So as it is implemented for energy and it's possible, it will drive the sort of the payment method and the payment structure towards spot pricing as it is for now. And I see that for almost all of the markets where you have an energy market with hourly pricing, which is correlated and can be uh, implemented towards the end consumer. Is there anything specifically that I haven't asked you that you think it might be important for the listeners to know about the Norway model? I think what the, also the Norway model shows is that sort of uh, there's doubts and that is sort of uh, also credible doubts across nations and countries on how does our energy grid support the rollout of a large number of EVs. And the Norwegian market, even though they have a quite matured grid and sort of stable grid, it has shown that it is possible. It has also shown that it is possible with the sort of, uh, with the adaptation of intelligent solutions. 
and the thing about applying the spot prices or applying sort of a dynamic load management and all of these things which have been sort of part of the rollout of the Norwegian market has to be adapted in similar European countries where the, the power grid is maybe even more fragile. Uh, and sort of the doubts on whether the power grid is, has the capacity of rolling out that large volume of cars, one really has to look at what is the intelligent solutions. Because if not, the rollout of EVs in these countries will be very expensive. Look for the Norwegian market that there is intelligent solutions on building supercharger hubs with load management between the chargers and intelligent solutions on impl implementing spot prices for leveling out sort of the the uh, charging uh, in the hours where there's uh, free capacity. All of these intelligent solutions must be applied also in the new markets where you roll out EVs and look for Norway because they sort of succeeded in taking it from zero uh, EVs uh, registered a year to now almost 100% of the uh, cars being registered. And they did that within the existing grid without having a huge blackout, but they did that in an intelligent way. And there's lots of takeaways from the Norwegian sort of rollout, which one has to learn from. I think that's a great point to uh, draw this to a close. Court, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you. To summarise, Norway's done some extremely good work when it comes to promoting EVs and selling them to the public. They've had a couple of issues when it comes to infrastructure, which seems to be common for all countries implemented EV charging. They started with free AC charging, people trailing cables across pavements, etc. But they quickly realised that if they were going to be moving across to EVs in a big way, they needed robust public infrastructure. The key learnings need to be to get your private investment in infrastructure sorted as quickly as possible so that the charges put in in big hubs as quickly as possible and sort out roaming so that regardless of which app you use or which payment method, it works across all charges regardless of who owns it. Finally, make sure your government is providing the most appropriate incentives to move people onto electric vehicles. This might be through grants, loans, VAT deductions, free parking, priority access to bus lanes for EVs, etc. My thanks to Tor for his time and expertise. I'm uh, in discussions with him about uh, having him come back at the end of the season to be one of our roundtable guests in episode 180. It's time for a cool EV or renewable thing to share with your listeners. Tesla has opened more of its European superchargers to third-party use. You remember last year that Tesla announced something like 15 UK sites would allow charging by non-Tesla vehicles. Well, in Europe, the proportion of superchargers that could leverage disability was much larger. Pretty much all the chargers in the Netherlands could do so, with sites in over 15 countries giving third-party access. News comes now that while the number of countries that could do so isn't changing, the number of sites in these countries is increasing. 69 of the 153 German supercharger locations can now be used with electric cars from other brands, a process which started with 16 supercharger locations in June of last year. In the UK, this number has changed slightly. When they first were opened up, there were only 15 of the 98 charging sites in the UK that would allow non-Tesla charging. This number has increased to 20, with the addition of various locations around the country, including now having access to five locations in Wales. When the new V4 supercharger units with the longer cables come online, this will be a game changer for UK charging. 
The EV Musings podcast is sponsored by ZapMap, the go-to app for EV drivers in the UK, which helps EV drivers search, plan, and pay for their charging. ZapMap is free to download and use with subscription plans for enhanced features such as using ZapMap in car, on CarPlay, or Android Auto. And that's the show for today. Hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you want to contact me, I can be emailed at evmusings at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at MusingsEV. If you want to support the podcast and newsletter, please consider contributing to becoming an EV Musings patron. The link is in the show notes. Don't want to sign up for something on a monthly basis? If you enjoyed this episode, why not buy me a coffee? Go to coffee.com slash evmusings and you can do just that. ko-fi.com slash evmusings. Takes Apple Pay too. I have a couple of ebooks out there if you want something to read on your Kindle. So, you've gone electric. Is available on Amazon Worldwide for the measly sum of 99p or equivalent, and it's a great little introduction to living with an electric car. So, you've gone renewable. Is also available on Amazon for the same 99p, and it covers installing solar panels, a storage battery, and a heat pump. Why not check them out? Links for everything we've talked about in the podcast today are in the description. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe. It's available on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a review as it helps raise visibility and extend our reach in search engines. If you've reached this part of the podcast and are still listening, thank you. Why not let me know you've got to this point by tweeting me at MusingCV with the words Scandi EV Porn. Hashtag if you know you know. Nothing else. Thanks as always to my co-founder Simon. You know, he was thinking about opening one of the first full-service attended charging stations in the world. Pull up, someone comes out, plugs you in, starts the charge, monitors the rate so you can go off and grab a coffee. He wanted to put it in Oslo, but the authorities denied him planning approval. Told him it would encourage kids to spend all day watching YouTube videos at charging stations rather than actually doing something useful. I think that that's one of the uh, areas where Norway might not be the sort of the most progressed. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.